Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 5. In the first part of chapter 5, we have a list of potential scenarios which might necessitate the offering of the sin offering. Following that, there's a list of potential substitutes for the lamb or the goat if the individual couldn't afford that, followed by a new section detailing the laws and procedures for the guilt offering. We'll begin reading at verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Let's just pause here. We don't often use the word adjuration in contemporary society, so we might need to unpack that. In the ancient world, before DNA tests and security cameras, justice depended largely upon the willingness of the community to offer honest testimony whenever a matter was in doubt. And so if someone's donkey were stolen or some money was stolen out of someone's house, a public adjuration to testify would be announced. In essence, the tribal leaders or the magistrate would pronounce a curse on anyone who had information about the incident should they fail to come forward with it. Now, the wronged individual could make that pronouncement as well. There's an example of that in Judges 17, 1-3. According to that story, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. So in that case, the son stole money from his mother. He was obviously quite a winner. Uh, Mom issued a public adjuration, and under the pressure of that, the son confessed and restored that which he had taken. That was the wise thing to do, according to Proverbs 29.24. The partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse, but discloses nothing. So only a fool hears the public adjuration and keeps his own counsel. If you do that, you hate your own life. So this sacrifice was for people who had originally ignored the public adjuration. They knew something. They had information, but they didn't disclose it, either because they didn't want to get involved or because they were involved and didn't want to admit it. Either way, they kept their own counsel. And the curse fell on them. Stuff started to go wrong. Their cattle started miscarrying. Their kids got sick. A weird rash broke out on their forehead. Whatever. Feeling the power of this curse, they came forward, confessed to what they had done or what they knew. And they offered a sin offering to effectively lift the curse that had fallen upon them. Now, of course, that raises the question of whether there was any reality to that supposed curse. Was all of this just managing the superstitions of the ancient Israelites? Or was God actively involved in causing miscarriages and rashes and sickness among his own people in pursuit of justice and truth? 
Well, one of the things you have to remember is that God had chosen Israel and entered into a particular relationship with them to save them, yes, but also to reveal himself to the nations of the world through them. So Israel was learning the rudiments of faith in these rituals, but they were also teaching the rudiments of faith through them, whether they knew that or not. Israel was God's message to the nations. He was telling the world who he was through their story. So, for example, later in the Old Testament, when God prophesied severe judgment against Israel, he justified it as necessary by saying, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness through their eyes. That's Ezekiel 36, verse 23. So God says, I need to severely chastise you so that the nations will know that I am holy. So God is peculiarly involved in the life and circumstances of Israel. He is telling a story. So to get back to the issue at hand, do I believe that cows miscarried and kids got sick and rashes broke out because curses in Israel were ignored by wrongdoers? Yes, I do, because God was teaching. He was teaching them, and he was teaching the nations through them. So this was not a charade. Israel's judicial process was alive with the presence of God. Therefore, a sacrifice like this was necessary if you ignored the public adjuration. Verse 2. Or, if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. This first paragraph in the chapter deals with a variety of potential circumstances that would warrant the bringing of a sin offering. We talked about the first one at some length. In verse 2, a second circumstance is mentioned, accidental contact with an unclean animal. We'll talk more about unclean things in chapter 11, but a great example of this would be the story of Samson giving his parents honey from the carcass of a dead lion in Judges chapter 14. They didn't know that they were eating something unclean. He didn't tell them where he got it. But had they found out, then this is the sort of sacrifice they would have needed to bring. Verse 3 is an extension of the same principle. It applies to a person who accidentally or unknowingly comes into contact with human uncleanness. Verse 4 has to do with uttering an oath. Now, the fact that he only comes to know of it later could mean that when he calmed down, he realized how foolish it was to have said that. Or it could mean that he made the vow while drunk 
and only learned of it when he sobered up. This implies that someone was kind enough to tell him of the mistake that he had made. The Bible assumes that we will work together in the cause of sanctification. That's why in Hebrews, the inspired New Testament commentary on Leviticus, it says in chapter 3, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's Hebrews 3.13. We all need help from the outside to identify some of these sins so as to deal with them appropriately. So this is a team effort. There is a role for our brother or sister to play, and there's a role for us to play. In verses 5 to 6, it is specified that during the ritual, the worshiper would be required to make confession. That takes courage. That takes faith. So again, we want to notice that this is not magic. This is faith-filled ritual. This is performative faith. Call it whatever you like. The person has to admit what he has done or said, and only then may he give his sin offering, a female lamb or goat from the flock, and the priest shall make atonement for him. Verse 7, but if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar. While the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar, it is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. So again, we notice the principle that worship should be expensive, but it should also be accessible to people from every level of society in terms of their economic capacity. And so here, a poorer person is allowed to bring two doves or pigeons. Now, why two birds instead of one? The most likely answer is that because the dove was so small, it couldn't be divided up. You couldn't take a memorial portion of a dove and burn that and have anything left over to give to the priest. So you needed to use two separate birds. One bird would be treated according to the rule of the sin offering for the common people. Blood would be sprinkled on the altar, just like in chapter 4, verses 27 to 32. This indicates that the pollution, while significant, had not penetrated the community as deeply as had the sins of the leaders. Then the remainder of that bird would be given whole to the priests. The second bird would be burnt on the altar according to the rule of the burnt offering. The goal here appears to be to preserve, even with the small size of the birds, the idea that part would be burned and part given to the priests. Now, this wasn't just about supporting the priesthood. It was, but it was also about comforting the person who brought the sacrifice. Andrew Bonner explains that the worshiper gets this assurance by means of the priests receiving his portion to feast upon and seeing the priest's household feast thereon, close quote. So when he sees the priest eating his sacrifice, he can be confident that his offering has been accepted. His gift has been rendered holy, holy enough even for the priest to eat it and share it with his family. And that seems to be the reason for the second bird. One goes to God, one goes to the priest, and the worshiper goes home reassured. Verse 11, 
But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. So here we see that an extremely poor person, who couldn't afford even the two birds, could bring a tenth of an ephah of flour for a sin offering. An ephah is about 23 liters, so a tenth of an ephah is 2.3 liters. So that is a very accessible option. In today's terms, we're talking about $2.50, based on the price of flour at the grocery store around the corner for me. Now, obviously food is much less expensive today relative to income than it was then, but still, this is an amount that would have been in reach for even the poorest of people in ancient Israel. Now, the reason this amount was chosen was because it represented a typical day's allotment of food. Thus, the poor person fasts for a day in order to make amends with God. Again, worship is expensive, but it is in reach of even the poorest of people. Once more, we see that a portion of what was brought is burned on the altar, and a portion is given to the priest according to the rule of the grain offering. Verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. So here we have a new section of regulations. These verses introduce the laws relating to the guilt offering. These offerings had to do with breaches of faith, whether in the matter of worship or in the matter of one's social conduct. Breaches of faith in the area of worship would include accidentally offering a blemished animal or the failure to make a Thanksgiving offering when one was obviously due. Breaches of faith in social conduct could also occur. One such is mentioned in Leviticus 19, verses 20 to 22. There the text says, If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. So normally, if a man slept with another man's wife, he'd be put to death, and so would she if she had participated willingly. But this scenario is a little bit different. Here the text imagines a man having sex with a young slave girl who was engaged to someone else. In this situation, he has to compensate the fiancé, paying him 120% of the bride money he had already paid to the owner of the girl, and he has to bring a ram to the sanctuary because of his breach of faith. Now, interestingly, there is only one animal permitted for the guilt offering, a ram, a male sheep. So this was pretty expensive. So you wanted to think twice before robbing God or defrauding and defiling your neighbors. Verse 16, 
He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. So here's where you get your 120%. Whatever it was you were supposed to give in the first place, whether to God or to the father of the girl, or as in the case mentioned above, the owner of the slave, whatever it was that should properly have been given, you have to give that plus 20%. And you have to bring the ram. So fraud was not cheap. But then again, no one had to do it. So the message here is if you can't do the time, then don't do the crime. Fraud shouldn't be cheap. This was a way of encouraging people to honor their obligations and to do things the right way in the first place. Verse 17, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Now, again, the English word unintentionally doesn't quite cover precisely what is being referred to here. The concept is bigger than unintentional. It includes unintentional, but it also includes sins of weakness and frailty. The young man who slept with the slave was committing a stupid act of passion. It certainly wasn't unintentional, but neither did he wake up that day determined to thumb his nose at God and violate the covenant. He is weak. He is not necessarily an unbeliever. The man who forgot to offer thanks or who got drunk and said something stupid. Again, He's not necessarily an unbeliever. He made a mistake out of weakness, distraction, and frailty, but he wants to make it right. In fact, the sums mandated for compensation indicate that he came forward voluntarily. In Exodus 22, where intentional theft or fraud are being dealt with, the compensation values are much higher. Exodus 22.1 says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Those numbers are much higher, 400% in the case of the sheep, 500% in the case of an ox. But here in Leviticus 5, the number is very low, only 120%. Gordon Wenham explains the significance of that disparity. He says, Exodus envisages a situation where the offender is convicted on the evidence presented by the plaintiff. But in Leviticus, the culprit confesses his guilt, making the penalty a low one should have encouraged voluntary surrender, closed quote. So imagine being the young man who, in a moment of passion, had sex with the slave girl on the neighboring farm, knowing that this will pollute the worshiping community you come forward voluntarily and confess what you have done. And you are now seriously out of pocket. You have to pay 120% of the bride price to the original fiancé. Presumably, the girl is now your fiancé, and you have to present a ram, a male sheep, to the priest and confess your sin to him. So this is serious business. But good on the young man for doing this. He might never have been found out, 
but he obviously feared the Lord. He knew that God was watching, and he knew that what he had done had been unfair and unkind to the young lady, and it had been unkind and unfair to the man who had intended to marry her, and it had been unkind to the entire community. What he did would affect the intimacy and connection of the entire worshiping community with the Lord. So he did a very hard thing. And I think the message here to us ought to be that we ought to care far more than we do for the presence and welcome of the Holy Spirit within our worshiping community. How many churches are wondering why it is that the presence of the Holy Spirit seems so distant? While all the while sins have been committed by the leaders or by the people that have not been confessed, that have not been dealt with through the means that the Lord provides. And as a result, the Spirit of God is grieved. We need to keep short accounts with God for the sake of our worship, for the sake of our community, and for the sake of our souls. That's the message for us in this passage. And for believers today in the New Testament, there really is no excuse because the price for doing this has already been paid. A male lamb was sacrificed on our behalf so that we can have peace with our Creator and with our community. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.